I want to talk, I'm going to do another presentation here. Um, this is a presentation when we use to talk about the gospel and the mission. And I want to talk some about how this relates to uh, reaching the uh, unreached and the unengaged. I want to do this in, uh, with a couple of things. I'm going to use some, I'm going to write on the screen over here. And, uh, and also um, use this presentation to share a little bit about, about, about the topic. Um, you'll see the Gospel Project is something we developed for the Gospel Project. Any, any of you users of the Gospel Project in your church? Anyone? Got a couple of them here? Okay. The Gospel Project, I'm the general editor of the Gospel Project, so it's something we launched out of our, uh, out of our, our desire to have a more theologically robust approach to uh, training people in churches. It actually goes from... Uh, from children to uh, all the way to adults, and it's crazy. We, we launched this a little over two years ago, and we now have 775,000 people every week using a Gospel Project resource. It's the craziest thing. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, so it just kind of shows the hunger, I think, the desire to sort of look at this the theological framework that's here. So one of the things that, that we're often asked is, well, how does the gospel and the mission, how does this all relate? And how is this going to relate to us reaching uh, unreached and unengaged people, which is what I'm going to talk about today. Now, um, I'm going to start by just kind of putting together a picture, a framework, right, a, uh, a, you know, kind of a matrix, if you will, of how we're thinking about the gospel in two descriptions of the gospel. There's a personal description of the gospel, and then also we have here a, uh, a, a cosmic description of the gospel. Now, cosmic... Um, Cosmic means that, you know, the cosmos in the sense of the, the, uh, the, the world, the universe, all that is, and, and ultimately how God is redeeming all things. So, so when we look at this from uh, the, the meta-narrative, the big story, the meta-narrative, we're talking about, about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, right? So that's the, that's the big picture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Uh, that's the gospel in uh, its cosmic description, that ultimately we live now between redemption and restoration. When as we talked about earlier, when God's going is, is redeeming a people, and, and 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 those people are about restoration, but ultimately He's going to restore all things. So we're between redemption and restoration on this uh, journey of time. Now, how long will that last? I don't know. Uh, you know, so so we you know we've come this far. And now we're between here. I, I don't know if we're, if we're right here. I don't know if we're right here. I don't know if 10,000 years ago people would talk about us as the early church uh, or if, if, you know, if Jesus is, is going to restore all things before that. But I do know we live between the times. Now, um, the challenge is, too, is that's not the only description of the gospel. And we have to find a way to rightfully integrate these. Is that there is a there is a personal description of the gospel that's often been described this way as, uh, as God man, and by man we mean men and women, but God, man, Christ response. So God is holy and just, right? God is, God is perfect. Uh, and, and, and man, men are, uh, men and women are sinners uh, in need of redemption and, and ultimately uh, to be saved by a loving Savior. And so, so God, man, and then uh, Christ is the, as the means of our reconciliation to God and our response to, to him is essential and important for us to understand. So, so God, man, Christ response is a uh, picture of the personal dimension. And, of course, that comes together in, in Christ and what Christ did on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, when he said, it is finished, uh, that was not a statement of his own life or breath. That was a statement of his own work. It is finished that God then validated by raising him from the dead. So the cross is so important, so central, so essential 
for us to ultimately understand. Um, and and so, so, so here's the picture, right? So the empty cross and tomb are central to both cosmic and personal redemption and restoration. So remember, the cosmic description, the personal description come together here, right, in God-Man-Christ's response. So this is the personal description as the response. And ultimately, the cosmic description will be laid out in the restoration of all things. Um, all right, so, um, so, so we have the, the, the cross as central to that. And then what, what, what I want you to see is this. I want to sort of take, right, so I move this in, right? You, you can kind of see that I, that I moved in the, the big graphic, right? I put the cross on it here. And now I want to do, I want to kind of blow up the section from redemption in Christ to the restoration of all things. And so, so let, me just, let me just take that and, and kind of lay that out like this, right? So from redemption to restoration, Redemption to restoration is where we are now, right? So the completed work of redemption leads to our ongoing mission. So here's where we are now, right? So, so the foundational truth and principle, ah, principle is the wrong word, the foundational truth and reality of our redemption is the gospel made real in our lives. And so we begin with that foundation, but, but there are some, some implications that flow from the gospel, right? So the people of God radiate. Uh, people of God radiate the gospel, both uh, gathered and scattered. So foundational gospel truth is in the redemption. Implications of that gospel we're going to see, um, and, and then there are applications that really become the mission, and then ultimately the culmination of all things in restoration. So, so, so the foundational principle here. So, so, so what are some things that are implications of the gospel that though they themselves are, are not the gospel? It's not necessary to say uh, everything is the gospel. So people often try to load up their gospel, right? So um, people say, what's missing in our gospel? The, the hole in our gospel is, is, uh, is, is, a, well-known, is a well-known book. Which, which actually, I, Rich Turns is the author, and so I, I'm not, I endorsed his next book. I just differed with this book. Um, and so, so Rich said in there that you kind of hold the gospel, and that's, and that, and that's missing the, the poor in our gospel. And I would say, no, no, I, I, think, I think that's a hole in our mission. So I would just nuance a little differently. But don't try to be more biblical than the Bible, because clearly there is a sense that from the gospel radiating out our implications, and those implications include things like the need for uh, proclamation and demonstration. And so, so somewhere, you notice the colors sort of change. This is more mission. This is more gospel. But somewhere, there, I mean, this is, it's, listen, we, we, this, we have a gospel-shaped mission and a mission-shaped gospel. Don't you miss that? We have a gospel-shaped mission and a mission-shaped gospel. Now, I want to be careful we don't load up the gospel with everything that is the mission. Also, we want to be careful they don't want to take out of the mission everything that Jesus puts in the mission. But we want to have a gospel-shaped mission and a mission-shaped gospel. And these things sort of begin to flow together, right? So the foundation of redemption, the work of Christ on the cross for our sin in our place that creates a new people, a new king, a new people, a new way of life that because of the gospel itself cares about the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, the demonstration of the gospel to the broken. Those are implications that flow out of the radiated gospel, that flow out of the gospel itself. And so those are implications. And then there's some applications of that as well. This is just a few of them, right? Some applications. Um, and, 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 um, and when we look at those applications, is we get a picture of things like evangelism and discipleship, of, of, of mercy uh, ministry, of, of church planting, 
of cross-cultural missions. Now, this is where we're going to talk about some, about kind of where we are now. And I think one of the challenges, we need a clearer understanding of, of the gospel. Um, we need, and I also, we need to gain a greater confidence of it. But we need a clearer understanding, greater confidence in the gospel, the implications of it. And then there are going to be some applications of it. They're going to help us to reach uh, unreached and unengaged people. Now, we're going to do that through evangelism. Um, and, and I will tell you, you know, Christians love evangelism uh, as long as somebody else is doing it. Um, and, and I think that's, that's part, of the, part of the challenge, um, is that we have to learn that uh, evangelism is, is the task of every believer. There's not even a gift of evangelism in the Bible. You may have heard it, you may have heard it taught. Um, but the Bible does never mention a gift of evangelism, ever, anywhere. Now, you're going to look it up. I know someone's going to email me. Uh, it mentions the evangelist, and the evangelist helps all God's people to engage in their responsibility of evangelism. There's a responsibility, not a gift. Um, and so, so evangelism is mercy ministries, right, serving the hurting uh, in the midst of a broken, hurting world. And that's, and that's one of the reasons that the salvos, uh, I think, are so respected by so, by so many is that they have this uh, beautiful connection. Many of you might not know, maybe you do know in Australia, but in the States, a lot of people don't know that Salvation Army is also a church. Uh, not also a church, Salvation Army is a church. And so, so but, but why? Because, because they have an instant credibility because of what they've known for and what they have done. Why? Because they're applying mercy ministries here as well. Now, now I will tell you, and you know this, no secret to you, they're having a challenge taking the opportunity that their great reputation gives them to evangelize and start more churches. And so it's a tricky thing. I've been working some with the Canadian Salvation Army on this very, very issue. So these are all things that sort of flow out of that. A couple more things here, and then we'll, um, we'll go into uh, some, 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 some specifics. Um, so while the gospel is not um, our work, but Christ's work, Jesus' finished work leads to our ongoing work. So we don't want to mix. We don't want to miss that, right? The, the, the gospel again. We don't want to. We don't want to load up the gospel, but we do want to make sure the mission is rightfully loaded up. Uh, how will we load up the mission? Well, the mission is certainly more than these two things, but therefore the mission is gospel proclamation, preaching the gospel, gospel demonstration, uh, living out its implications, and showing people. So we are a, a missionary people reflecting a missionary God. Uh, our mission flows out of the gospel. Flows out of the gospel, okay? Now you say, well, I want a very clear delineation. I, I know you do. Unfortunately, that's not what the New Testament gives us. Um, now, now, because we see like preaching the gospel of the kingdom or the inbreaking of the kingdom, and then we see Paul in 1 Corinthians saying that, that this is of first importance, that this is the gospel, and then, and then we see this references the gospel of the kingdom. So here's what I would say, is that we want to make sure we don't load up the gospel, which what, that which should not be there, we want to make sure that, the, that those are implications of the gospel, things we should do and, and must do because of the gospel, and then the applications are going to be in the mission. So notice the color of the lines sort of shift in the middle as the gospel and its implications then become the mission and its applications. And so we're a missionary people reflecting a missionary God. Our mission flows from the gospel. And again, the gospel is settled and finished, but rich with implications and applications that flow that flow from it. So at the end of the day, our call and our cause is to join Jesus on his mission to this uh, broken and hurting world. Now, let me, let me talk about Australia for just a bit. Now, now again, when I say I talk about Australia, I, I know and I recognize that you know that I'm not Australian, uh, though maybe when I said reckon, it sort of threw you off. Um, but I, I, I reckon this doesn't look like a, this looks like a permanent marker. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm trying to, to check before I before I mess it up. No, I guess it's not. Okay. 
Okay. Well, hence, hence the big line that says whiteboard marker. Uh, but anyway, um, so, so one of the challenges you have to recognize here is that there is a, uh, there's a great um, diversity. That's not the right word. Uh, there's a great shift going on in, in our culture today. Okay, so there's a great shift going on in our culture today. And that shift can, can largely be described and defined uh, by, by when you look at and you get a picture, if you will, and what I want to try to do is to give you a picture, get a picture, if you will, of actually uh, what Christian means to different people. So uh, let me show you what I mean by this shift in culture that I think will help us to get a better picture of the unreached uh, and the unengaged. So, so in, in, in Australia... Uh, depending upon who you ask, the, the Austra- Australians represent uh, about about sixty uh, about sixty to sixty five percent of Australians are Christians. Now, now I recognize somebody like you're objecting to that before I finish the sentence, but I'm just telling you what they say. Okay, so I know you think they're they're wrong, but I mean, I, but that's what they say. So when answering a survey, now it's 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 on the low end on the census on the. Uh, uh, and, and, and it's a little higher, like McCrindle has it, I think it's mid-64s, 64 point something, I think it's 64.5. But so 60 to 65% are, are, uh, are, 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 are Christians. Now, um, now um, so that leaves, that, that leaves this other chunk up here, right, are, are non-Christians. So non-Christians are in two broad categories. You have other religions. Some people are non-Christians because they're Jewish or Hindu or Muslim. So you have other religions, um, and, 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 and then you have uh, secular people um, in, in the other side who just basically say, no, I'm, I'm not Christian, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just secular. I could be atheist agnostic or just uh, what we sometimes call the, the nuns. Uh, the nuns, if you notice the spelling is N-O-N-E-S, not nuns like the ladies with the cool hats, uh, but nuns as in none of the above. So when they fill out a survey, they don't say they're, they're Jewish, Hindu, Christian, Lutheran, Baptist. They say, I'm nothing. I'm none of the above. Now, so, so, but here, so here's the picture that we're seeing, right? So, well, in here, now this is, I took, I'm taking this from, with compressed Australian numbers, I'm taking this from an article I wrote in uh, the, kind of the national newspaper in, in, in my country called USA Today. And the, uh, they asked me to write an analysis of sort of cultural trend data related to Christianity. I occasionally write columns for them. And so, and so I described that you have to understand that though you hear, like, so 75% of Americans say that they're Christians. And, you know, it's, it's different. It shifts in different ways. So Australia is a little lower than UK, a little higher than New Zealand. Um, but so what I said is you have to divide the Christians uh, into three uh, segments or categories. Maybe divide is the wrong word. You just have to categorize them. And so, so really... You have to recognize that about, um, you know, you can break it down different levels, but, but about 60 65% say they're Christian. But for, for most of them, they're actually in these, uh, in these first two categories, which we're going to call nominal Christians. They're actually in the first two categories. So those are the nominal Christians. Okay? So in other words, they, they name themselves Christians because they don't want to be atheists. Nobody likes atheists, right? So, and they don't want to be other religions. I mean, really, atheists have a bad reputation. So, so they're, they're, they're not Muslims. They're not atheists. So they say they're Christians because they don't want to fill out a census form and say that, uh, that they're one of the other things. Right? So that's how they explain it. So with that being said, there's, there's here what I call in this article, and I'll, I'll explain here, there are cultural Christians there are congregational Christians, and they're both in the category of nominal Christians. So cultural Christians are people who have really no connection 
to an ongoing congregational practice or anything of that sort, but they're just not something else. They're Australian, and because I'm Australian, because of the history, you know, because we came over and the fleet and the chaplain and the, and the first churches and, 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 you know, and Anglicanism and subsequently other faith traditions as well, I'm Christian. Okay, so that makes up a, a chunk of the people who say that they're, that they're Christians in Australia. But, but still, there's another category, and that's those who are congregational Christians. Okay, so congregational Christians, uh, you may see them at Christmas and Easter, right? So we call them Christers because of Christmas and Easter. Uh, but so with congregational Christians, they're not really ordering their lives around their faith. They're not really serious necessarily about what it means to be a, a committed uh, believer. So Christian to them is, is something that's related to a heritage, but also has some congregation. Maybe they're baptized as a baby. Maybe they're married in a church. Um, and, and you can actually see that in, in government. You'll see this during Anzac Day. You'll see on Anzac Day um, that there will be some connections. It has a, it has a religious feel to it. Right? And so there'll be some church connections. Churches will hold uh, ceremonies and celebrations and memorials on that day. You saw that uh, when the Duke and Duchess uh, were here, and they, they, they came, and they, they got the Fleet Bible, um, and they actually signed at the Sydney Anglican Cathedral, uh, they signed the Fleet Bible along with, uh, I guess, three monarchs have signed the, the, the Fleet Bible. And, and so why? Because there's a connection, a congregational connection that's historic but I, I don't necessarily think that people would say they're, they're ordering their lives around it in the culture. Okay? So, uh, and, and so it was funny. So we actually I got to saw, saw the Fleet Bible, held the Fleet Bible, because um, it's, it's, it's held at that church. I preached that on, on Sunday. And, uh, and the guy who was, <laughs> the bloke who was um, showing it to me, it's very funny. Because, you know, the, Queen Elizabeth signed it when she was reigning as monarch, but those two weren't. Uh, weren't monarchs at the time of Sunday, but later would become them. And then, but she, he, the guy, the guy made a point saying, "Oh, and then there's, there's this fellow. He married an American woman." And I was like, "Yeah, I kind of know the story, and, uh, and I'm really sorry about that." And so it was a big mess, but it was funny. So, so, but, but, so, but there's still a sense, you know. Most, of you know, you know, what's Fleet, Fleet Bible people in Australia might know some, so they because they might go to church and have heard that at Christmas, Easter, or maybe when they were younger. Now, here's the thing I don't want you to miss. Okay, but there's a percentage of people who call themselves Christians in our society, that it's actually, another, another word, is it's actually convictional. Now, um, convictional. Now, this includes, um, this includes uh, evangelicals, but it also include Roman Catholics. It would include, uh, include uh, mainline, mainline. You don't use the term mainline here so much. I think you know what I'm talking about when I say it, but more of the Australian National Council of Churches. You know. so, so, but there are people in all three of those three traditions and more where, where they, they, they tend to take their faith seriously. They order their lives around their faith. Um, it, it, I make, they make decisions based on their faith. Now, here's the thing I want you to hear. This is important. The percentage of people in the convictional Christian category has not declined precipitously in the last several decades. You say, well, and the church has declined. Catholicism is, is collapsing, and, and, and the Uniting Church is in freefall. And those are all true things. But what's happening is those who are convictionally Christians tend to pass on the faith to the next generation. The majority of people who are convictional Christian parents have convictional Christian children. And this number has remained relatively steady, though a minority in Australian culture. A little more in Canada, a little more, in, more, more still in the U.S., a little less uh, than the U.S. and the U.K. And so, so, so what you have here is this. So what's happening? So why does it feel like society is so much more secular and anti-Christian? Because it is. 
But the secular and anti-Christian, and again, anti-Christian, I want to be careful because we're not being persecuted. You know, there's you know, the fact that people don't wish you Merry Christmas when you go and buy something at the store and you snarl back at them, Jesus is the reason for the season, is probably not helpful. You know, that's not their job to spread the good news. But so, so here's the thing. So what's happening is this. There's a statistical shift going on right now. But the shift that's going on right now, and I'm going to project out a continue of this, is this. The shift that's going on is the mushy middle, right, is collapsing. And this is why we're seeing this in mainstream Anglicanism in Australia, in the Uniting Church, in Catholicism, and elsewhere. It's a little less so so in evangelicalism and even less so among Pentecostalism. I'm going to explain why in just a second. Um, But one of the reasons is, is that the mainstream churches, which are now the minority, by the way, the mainstream NCC Protestant churches are now the minority of church attendees. There's more evangelicals attending churches in Australia than there are uh, mainstream NCC, National Church Churches, Australian churches. But what's happening is they had a lot more nominals. Why do they have more nominals? Well, you could make a theological case that, well, they didn't do this or do that, whatever. But here's another reality of it. They've been around a lot longer. The longer you've been around, the more nominal people you have. The more that your initiation ritual is connected to a time when you didn't know about it, the more nominals you have. In other words, you baptize babies, you have more nominal Christians. So then you have evangelicals who call for a belief, a personal conversion that might be when they're 10 or or 12 or whatever, they have less nominals. And then you take Pentecostals who not only have a personal conversion, but have a subsequent experience that is out of the mainstream, the initial physical evidence of speaking in tongues and things of that sort. So it's hard hard to be a nominal Pentecostal because either you're speaking in tongues or you're not. It's hard to be speaking in tongues and be nominal. Does that make sense? Okay, so, and again, don't, don't, well, I don't believe in that. I get it. All right, so stay with me. I'm just, I'm just talking about cultural, sociocultural realities. Right, so, so the picture here is this, is that uh, this is where the, the big squeeze is going on. And, and what's happening statistically is that the nominals are actually bailing out and becoming the nuns without changing much about their practice, but just changing their label. By the way, this is my family. To my family, when I grew up Irish Catholic, most of my family said they were Catholic. Today, my, and they, but they weren't. They were nominal Catholics. Today, they just say they're nothing. So nothing's happened except it becomes less valuable in culture. It's not that important to identify as a Christian in Australia today. A hundred years ago, if you didn't identify as a Christian, you probably couldn't win an election. You probably wouldn't be on a school function or an elected school function. Today, announcing you're a Christian too aggressively could keep you off the school leadership. So there's a shift in culture. So, but what's happened is this is key, right? So what you have is now, is now the majority of people in culture are either secular or nominal. So the two big challenges right now in our culture are nominalism and secularism. You say, Ed, you say there's secularism. Too many S's. All right. You say, Ed, well, you're saying those are the only two big, no, no. I said those are two big issues. Because I would say people of other faiths need to hear the gospel, right? I want to I preach the gospel to Hindus and Muslims and Jews and everybody who needs to hear the gospel. But the two big categories in Australia right now are nominal Christians and secular people. And the nominals are actually shrinking because they're switching over to be secular people. While the percentage of people who are convictionally religious, a percentage of which are convictionally evangelical, is actually a pretty substantive minority. But here's why it feels so different in the culture today. The reason it feels so different, why it's like, it feels like we're in the middle of a great shift. We are because, and this is key, right? So if you went back 50 years ago, the percentage of people who were attending church on a, on a high level was never a, major, was never a majority of people attending church in recent decades in Australia. 
But the difference was, 50 years ago, everyone sort of was a little higher, but, but everyone sort of here sort of let the convictional Christians set the rules, set the morality, set the agenda, right? So what's happened, though, is what's shifted is, is now the secular people are actually setting the agenda and bringing in cultural Christians and congregational Christians. And even though they call themselves Christians, they act and think more like secular people, which they're starting to actually label themselves more like secular people as well. So the nominals are becoming the nuns. Cultural and congregational Christians are thinking and acting like secular people. And it's becoming very evident that convictional Christians really are a minority in culture. There's never been a majority of convictional Christians in Australian society in the recent decades. And yet we're recognizing now that we are not a religious majority. We are instead a prophetic minority that needs to be on mission for the cause of Christ and his gospel. So we've got secular and nominal, right? So secularism, nominalism, but secular and nominal. And so what we've got here is unreached, unreached, and unengaged. Unengaged. So as we look to the unreached and the unengaged, we have to recognize that in the context where we find ourselves, that our mission and our call and our strategy has to be driven by new cultural realities because the church has lost its home field advantage in the English-speaking West. Uh, it used to be the chaplain to culture. It's lost its home field advantage. So we have to recognize. Let me just give a few implications. Um, first, don't give up on the nominals. Don't give up on the nominals. There's a lot of nominal people who actually are open to the, the, the Ben the Pentecostal asked earlier. Um, there's still a lot of nominal people who are open to institutional church. Um, they've sort of been turned off or turned away or never even considered it. So don't give up on the nominals. Find ways to strategically, and I wrote about this just for Easter, to strategically engage your Easter and your Christmas opportunity. That's a chunk of people. That's a, that's a chunk of percentage of people who are nominal Christians in Australia. The opportunity is there. But we're going to have to start teaching our people to reach secular people. The best book on the subject is actually by an American. I, I wish I had an Australian book that would really deal with this in the same way. I'd, I'd recommend it to you in a second. But it's by a guy named James Emery White. It's called The Rise of the Nuns. And how to engage, basically it's how to engage them. I had the privilege of, I think I wrote the forward or I'm on the cover or something. But I'm, 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 this is, I didn't help with the book, but I'm a big fan of the book. It's how are we going to engage secular people who, when we open a Bible and say the wages of sin is death, they say, what do you mean sin? What do you mean death? And why do I have to believe the Bible? And so um, there are ways to shift this and the ways that we, we change. And, and, I, and I've gone too long probably to... Uh, address some of these that I, I actually, well, I'm trying to decide if I, if I can pull it off. Um, but, but what I would say is, is a couple of things that may, that may help. As you're, as you're preaching, um, I would encourage you to consider that you may need to engage in apologetics in, 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 a, just regu- in your regular message. In other words, uh, and you know who's, who's the greatest? This is Tim Keller. You know, he's reaching a secular place in New York City. And he'll be going through, I'm going through the Gospel of Matthew right now, and I try to do this, and and I'll be preaching through Matthew, and somebody, you know, I know people are there, and I'm talking about these miracles, and they're like, there are no miracles. So I'll say, just as an aside, hey, listen, if, if you don't think there are miracles or miracles could exist, let me explain how your worldview is getting you there and how ultimately it doesn't make sense. And, and so, I, so I'll, I'll go that direction. And so I encourage you to consider more apologetics. I encourage you to recognize that we're starting in a religious deficit. Don't stand up and think people have a religious memory to which you can appeal. They don't. Um, you can't get up and say, you remember when we, you know, in the Bible when this happened or that happened? No, they can't remember in the Bible when this or that happened. Um, I, I'd also add, 
that the greatest apologetic to secular people is not going to be the fact that the prophecies in the Old Testament kind of reflect and come true in the New Testament. The greatest apologetic to secular people is going to be that the people they know who are genuine Christians live radically different lives and are living with a peace that passes all understanding. And lastly, I would say that don't be afraid to tell the story, to tell the story of, of the gospel and to actually call people and to say to them, you know, there is, there really is a creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Help them to understand what the big picture that Christians believe means and challenge the ways that undermine perhaps the defeater beliefs in their lives. Again, uh, I use, I'm, I'm relying on Keller's term for defeater beliefs um, as well. So um, I'll give you a pic- big picture. Let's go to questions because I want to make sure we want We didn't have enough time for questions before. We want to make sure we really honor your time uh, with questions. So I'll, I'll turn it over to, to these guys for, for Q&A. I, my, my family and I grew up in a part of Australia that secularised very quickly, yeah. very early. And a reflection of my elder brother had when he did an exchange program in Minnesota, uh, a Dutch-American area in Minnesota in the early 80s, was with a large percentage of normal Christians attending church. He said what was harder than being a Christian in some respects where we lived, it was better because in evangelising people the distinction between being a real disciple of Jesus and, and, and their lifestyle was clearer. So it was actually, while, while in living it was harder, it was actually easier to evangelize. Yeah. Reflections on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think in a place where nominalism is prevalent, devotion is not. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I live, in the, I live in the American South, and I'm not from the American South, I'm from New York City. Uh, in New York City, when you're an evangelist, is what we call a target-rich environment. Um, the American South, everyone is, everyone actually thinks they're a believer. I mean, they actually think they're saved. They, they don't even just say, I'm a Christian in the generic sense. They say, I was saved when I was eight. You know, I was Pentecostal or Methodist or Baptist or Church of Christ or something to that effect. And I will tell you, having, raising three daughters in the American South, um, and I have to be careful saying this because I know we're recording this, I do think in some ways it's been dangerous for their spiritual health. Um, and, they, and they've said that. They've said, you know, everyone we know is sort of like a Christian, but they're not. And, and, and you know, when, when I was planting churches, I planted a church in the inner city of Buffalo, New York, one of our poorest cities and um, very secular environment. I got to tell you, you knew, you knew who was a Christian, who wasn't. And when you became a Christian, it was a radical change of life. And so I, I do think that, and there are certain places here, you know, we have you know, uh, Sunshine Coast, right? Isn't, isn't that disproportionately got a church presence? And there are places like that that are Bible Beltish um, in Australia. Um, you know, but, but, but I think that it, it confuses what the converted life actually looks like. Where basically the culture feels religious and you just basically go to church or not, then it confuses that. So I, I'm actually, I'm not excited about the secularization of the West. But I do think one of the good outcomes of what I think is probably a bad thing is that what a Christian is is going to be much more clear. And so I don't anticipate that in 50 years, the majority, uh, 50 years from now, you know, Australia will be a different place. Melbourne will be the largest city in Australia, and they will mock Sydney incessantly for this. Um, one of the other things is 50 years from now, the majority of people who live in Australia won't identify as Christian. Um, some of that's because of the way your immigration patterns have changed. You actually, you historically brought in people from, uh, you know, first English-speaking Anglicans, but, but then even the other immigration patterns were from Europe and places like that, and so they, they all identify as Christian, um, even if they're not committed. 
well, now you're into more Asian immigration, which they have followers of other world religions. So, so there's that. But also, too, I just think for most Australians, they're just going to get honest, like Americans and, and the Brits are getting honest, that no, I'm just not. Um, and so when that happens, what is will be more evident, and therefore the contrast will be more clear. So I think it will be both harder and easier to be a Christian at the same time. It will be harder because there is a certain value of being a Christian that where, where I live, you know, people don't do certain things because it's a churchy kind of culture. Um, and so that benefits my parenting, perhaps, in some ways. My children are not faced with some of the aggressive, secular, worldly things that they might be faced if, I, if they grew up in New York City. So it's harder, um, but it's also easier. And it's easier in that I, I can, they go along with the stream of culture. It's harder because they're going along with the stream of religious culture. And, and here's the way I put it. I think people in religious culture are inoculated against the gospel. So, um, and it's not going to be So I remember back, Scott and I were talking. He, he got, uh, he's got to take one of his kids in for their, for their inoculations. Vaccinations. Is that what you call them here? Vaccinations? We call them inoculations. It's the same idea. They're going to inject your child with a weakened or deadened version of a disease that they will build up antibodies to so they're resistant to the real thing that could kill them. So they might even feel sick for a day or two, right? A little sore for a day or two. Well, I think that when you're in a religious area, you've inoculated the whole population with a weakened version that makes you resistant to the real thing. And so I think therein is the danger. So being a Christian in a secular society gives the opportunity for a clear proclamation of the gospel and clear life change. It's just harder sometimes as well. It's a great question. Yes. Yes, sir. Thank you. My name is Jeff, and I'm an Anglican uh, priest. Great. Um, and you say priest... You say priest, which all the Anglicans that I've met so far in, in Australia don't say priest. So it's nice to reach an Anglican who says priest. I've been to Sydney. Yeah, that's mostly. And, and you know, from I, I hang with the Anglicans I hang with are you know Archbishop Kalini and, and you know and, and Akinola and those guys. But anyway, so tell me more. There was some English writing a few years ago that talked about the situation in the UK yeah. of having a group of people who still attend church and all their nominals boiled off as well in the 60s. Yeah. Here. Uh, and a group of people who used to attend church in the last generation and divided the de-church, they used that word, into open de-church and closed yeah. de-church. Yeah. And the closed de-church were people who, they or their families used to do church and Jesus and all that, uh, but we crapped on them and they left. Did they actually say crapped on them? No. Okay, but I, was, I get the point, though. Um, we're, we're doing a Royal Commission in Australia about institutional abuse of children. Yeah, I've read. Um, and a number of churches are being humiliated by that, including including sure. um, and the Sallies, etc. Um, the, the closed de-church who kind of met Christians and we hurt them. Hmm. Uh, any, any, any comment on how you how you engage with those? Yeah. By the way, my, um, my grandfather-in-law um, was was a uh, in, in, in Canada, from the UK, it was called the Homes of Waifs and Strays, and my grandfather was was one of those. When Donna and I went to in, ha- in Halifax, there's there's the uh, the port of entry where most of the people came. And Donna looked up in the computer, and they found her grandfather, and they immediately said, "Oh, we're so sorry. Here's some information about what happened," uh, because they were part of that 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 abuse and that and that that challenge in, in different eras. In different eras, as you know, um, you know, we are talking about reaching de-churched people. You know, they, they, which some of the language we used, um, they're, they're unchurched because they went to church and something happened. Um, and, so, and so then they dropped out of church. And, and you're right. I think there are the open, uh, the open de-churched and the closed de-church. 
And the closed D church are generally closed D church because of experience of a negative thing. It might be the might be a pastor's kid. You know, I was I was in an airport. Um, I, I sign. I use sign language. It wouldn't be the same here because it's it's uh, American sign language. But I started a deaf church, and I'm in the airport. I'm seeing this this kid talk and um, with the server writing some things down. So I just turned around and started a conversation. Turns out he was uh, an Australian Christian church, Assemblies of God. He was an Assemblies of God pastor's kid. Um, but he was, man, he just burned in the church. His dad was treated poorly, and so he's just burned in the church. Man, he wouldn't open at all. It's, it's just, it's just a, a brokenness that's there. I would say some of the hardest people to reach are people that have been reached and are now unreached. Uh, it's not just, they're, just that they're inoculated. It's that they're, they a bit have a bit of a revulsion towards the things of the faith. So what I would say is um, a couple of things. First, um, and this is just off the top of my head, people like that are generally going to be reached by churches not like the one that burned them. And I don't just mean like jerks and non-jerks, right? But what I mean is that if you got burned in a Pentecostal church, you might hear the gospel in an Anglican church. If you got burned in an Anglican church, you might hear the gospel in a Baptist church. And so, so I think you have to recognize and that it might be somebody who you walk in and there's a difference and it feels different from where you actually are. Second thing I would say is that, you know... I, I, I saw, saw a friend once witness, and someone was explaining, share, they were sharing the gospel, someone was explaining some of the, why they were de-churched. And, and they had a great phrase. I think it's helpful. They said, they said well, I, I couldn't follow a God like that either. I, I think a disavowal of the Christian action in the name of God is sometimes a good thing to do. So I, I couldn't. If, if, if that was God, I wouldn't want to follow God either. But then that open people, well, what do you mean? That's not God? No, here's the God of, that, that I know. Here's the God the God of the Bible. Here's, here's, here's the God that Christians believe in. Um, but I think you have to, you have to defeat the, the perception that this is what Christianity is that has hurt them so much. Now, sometimes what hurt them so much is something that is a genuine Christian belief, but it can be expressed lovingly and graciously. What we say is, is how we say it is, 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 is exceedingly important, not just what we say. So I, I think that's been a key issue. You know, I, I would say too, our experience has been is that it takes time. Um, you know, I guess it takes time for everybody, but it takes a long time. And what I would say is, is people who have been burned by church, um, you may actually help them engage in Christian community that's not congregational, but it's actually just Christian. In other words, um, it might start, you know, I, I think of my neighbor, one of my neighbors that I mentioned. Um, you know, for her, she was, she was burned in a church, and then, and then she has a different view than our church um, on, on an issue that, that's significant. And so, but for her, she was burned. I mean, she, she's very much burned in a church. And so what I would say is, man, we just want to love her and be her friend. We watch, we watch her kids. We're friends. We're neighbors. We, we invite her over for dinner. We, we, we pray when we do. We, we invite her to Easter services. And, um, but we're recognizing that it takes a long time. My, my, uh, my, my, my family, most of my dad's side of the family is not believers. My, my mom's side of the family, my mother and her husband, you know, that was, my parents got divorced. My mother and her husband are... Um, are believers, and actually in the, in the Orthodox tradition, they're, they're Eastern Orthodox. Now, he's a priest, so my stepfather's an Eastern Orthodox priest. I'm like a walking ecumenical movement. Um, and, um, but when my sister died, my sister died of a rare form of cancer when she was a uh, young adult, and um, that's what cemented my father's secularism in a lot of ways, and that's the wrong word, secularism. He's spiritual but not religious, but it... it my mother, who was a pastor's wife, priest's, priest's wife, um, she walked away from the faith for seven years. Um, 
she, she just said, I, could, I, can't, I can't follow a God that would allow such hurt. I see my daughter tortured to death by chemotherapy. And, um, and I think, and, and you know, my stepfather and I are not particularly close. I'm being very self-referential and probably giving too much information. We're not particularly close. Um, got, he, they got married when I was a teenager, and you know, having a teenage step, when you're step, stepdad when you're a teenager never goes well. Um, but what he did is, and I've seen him do with others, he just loved her and kept showing the love of Christ to her. And her hurt, which was not by church people, though there were some church people, the, there was a couple of, you know, church people said really dumb things. It must be God's will. This must be God's best. There must be something around the corner that's better. What's better than your daughter living and not dying a slow death from cancer? Um, but for her, one of the things I, I appreciate about my stepfather, even though, like I said, we're not close, is that he was patient enough and loving enough that seven years, and now she's walking with the Lord, and her life has been, you know, reset around the things of faith and see and and, and so I just think that patience thing can't be understated. One of the things, there was a study of, uh, and I, do, I wish I could remember the study off the top of my head, and I, I can't remember who did it, but I do remember it was good, is that of, of convinced atheists, I think it was half of convinced atheists were actually people of faith who had a bad experience of some sort, like my mom would walk away because of, of illness or like a church kind of um, you know, did something bad or whatever. And what I would say is um, I think the answer in those kinds of situations is going to be patient, loving, um, you know, the appealing. We, you know, Second Corinthians 5, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Well, that's going to be a lot of love before we actually get to that. But it's a great question. I, I don't know that I answered it particularly well, um, but I, I like to think more on it. Um, but I think it's a, it's a great question, an important question. So I'll, I'll actually, I, what I did, you may have noticed that I reached down and I turned on my phone because I recorded that because I want to think more on that and I want to write it out a little bit more and I want to think more on it. So if you read it at edstetcher.com, you expect in a couple of weeks I'm going to write out and kind of add some stuff to that. So thanks so much. Glad you're here uh, as well. And uh, good, to, good to see a priest because uh, I'm used to Anglicans having priests. So, yeah, who else? Uh, hi, I'm Lucas. I'm from Cooper Presbyterian. Yeah. Um, I help run evangelistic youth camps. And a big problem we have with totally unchurched teenagers is getting them to admit that there's something more, yeah. that there could be something wrong with their life. <laughs> Can you just give some reflections on helping non-teenagers admit that there's something wrong? Yeah, well, you said two things. You said there's something more, which I would think would be easier than there's something wrong. Is that, is that true? Or just, you know, just stand back up. Don't, don't, don't. It's okay. Talk to me. It's a little bit easier to talk about something more, but not very much. But not very much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, I think, you know, I mean, part of the problem in Western culture is we're doing quite well. Um, even after the global financial crisis, most people are doing quite well. And conversions that take place among secular people who are, from students to adults, conversions like that take place because most of the time there's some sort of cataclysmic event in somebody's life uh, that sort of gets them there. It was my, my case, right? So I you know, became a believer as a, as a young man, a teen. Uh, uh, but I did because my life was messed up and Jesus was a better way. And so what do you do in a materialistically successful, hedonistic culture? This is all going pretty good. Uh, and it shouldn't surprise us. You know, Jesus speaks of, you know, the rich. It's easier to go through the, you know, the camel to go through the eye of a needle uh, than for the rich. And the rich certainly define English-speaking Western culture. I mean, that, that by the standards of the global reality today and the global history, we're certainly rich. So, so but if, if the challenge is, is how do you persuade them there's something more and how do you persuade them uh, that there's something wrong, I, I like how you phrase that, 
uh, I think both require um, some intentionality. I think something more is, is I, 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 my experience has been most people do think that there's something beyond, which is not quite the same as saying something more. There's something out there. And I, and I think in that case, um, I think lovingly to persuade that, I mean, there really has to be something to be considered to the fact that there was a guy who was dead on Friday and on Sunday, not so much. Uh, and so what does that mean for us? So I think one of the things that, uh, that I'm increasingly convinced that will help people be persuaded there's something more and there's something wrong is we'll be in, in the kind of community conversation like, like uh, I mentioned, I had Alpha on the screen earlier. And I recognize you know, some, some of you would not be in, in the Alpha kind of idea. It's decidedly charismatic and, and kind of different approach. But, or even Christianity, uh, Christianity Explored uh, or, or uh, you know, those kinds of conversational community things where the group has a discussion that both challenges the temporalness of existence in conversation and really defeats some of the underlying belief systems that, that tr- try to press down that there's not something more. So I think at the end, I think the something more part, in my view, I, I kind of rely on Augustine. My heart is rest, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the, Augustine would say. We call that the heart-shaped, uh, the God-shaped hole in all of us. So, so the something more part, I think, would be best addressed in a conversation where people are challenging one another. The something wrong part, I think, is a little harder, maybe a little harder, maybe a lot harder. I would think a lot harder. You're saying a little harder, but it's certainly harder. Um, and I think that, that the something wrong has to be, for me, um, I actually don't do this so much with secular people, God, man, Christ response. And part of the reason I don't do that is I, this first thing I did with my dad. So I came, new believer, you know, just came to Christ at, at some camp that my mother made me go to to hear the gospel. And I come home to him. I say to my dad, Dad, are you saved? First thing I said, Dad, are you saved? And he said, saved from what? And I said, I, I don't know, but you need to be. Uh, you know, and so I wasn't exactly the most gifted uh, evangelist. But I would say that when I, just recently, my dad, um, my dad went through a, uh, he called me up and said he was going to go in through some surgery that was life-threatening, an aneurysm. I had to have repaired in his brain. And he'd either be life-threatening or he could lose his mental uh, faculties. So I said, well, can I come down and talk to you? And, you know, I've been sharing my dad the gospel for 30-plus years. So he's, I imagine he smiled and said, sure, bring your Bible. Uh, I, did, I didn't bring my Bible, but I think I did bring my Bible. But anyway, he didn't say that. So I, on three days' notice, I booked a flight and flew down to across the country and to meet him for lunch. Uh, it was the most expensive ham sandwich I've had in my life because uh, buying a flight on short notice is that challenging. So my dad's really smart, um, smart guy. He's a very successful business consultant, lives on a beach in Florida. And so I flew down there. And I will tell you that I didn't, I didn't do God, man, Christ response. What I said to him, and we had a three-hour conversation. We, we laughed together. We wept together. We prayed together. He's very open. It's the most intense, in-depth conversation I've had about the gospel with anybody who didn't trust and follow Christ. And he didn't trust and follow Christ. He's not a, he's not a believer today. So, but what I did is I, I, I talked about this. Dad, clearly, there is a, and, and I use some apologetics there. I mean, I, you know, and, and I, I'm starting with apologetics. Is that there's clearly a creator, and why? Why we talked about this, or there's clear, you know, I mean, you know, sort of, you, you, I, you know, some of your presuppositional apologetics, whatever. But I, I use some of the classic arguments. I didn't talk about them. I didn't say I'm going to now move into the ontological argument, my father. We're going to get to the teleos, cosmology. Anyway, uh, you know, I didn't do that. But but I just started there. 
And so I said, so let's talk about it. So the world was good, but, but it's broken. Dad, you, you can see the world's broken. Your head is broken, right? You're going to go in for surgery because your head's broken, and there's sin around, there's wars, and there's injustice. And, and so, but then, and this is, the, this is the tricky part, so lovingly and with joy and, and, and share this. But at the end of the day, it's the what's wrong question. So, so I said, Dad, the world's broken. And that's the ultimate question you have to ask is, is why did Jesus die on the cross what was his purpose? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I guess you know, he was a good example. I said, yeah, and I, and I get that. He was a good example. But ultimately, he died on the cross for our sin in our place. Let's look at what he said, and let's look at why he said it. Now, now I would tell you, that's a, that's a conversation that's going on 30 years. I wouldn't get there in, an, in, in a three-hour conversation. Um, but, but again, it's, it's helping them understand that God is holy, and because of the holiness of God, which may be the hardest concept, it might be the fundamental concept that everyone needs, because of the holiness of God, there's something wrong. And that's something wrong this takes some time to get to. So for me, it's just recognizing that when you're working with secular people, you're not starting like one step from, I need Jesus. You're starting like 10 steps from, why would I even need to need Jesus? Because they don't recognize there's something wrong. So what I would say is, in a picture of a redemptive plan, I try to lay that out. But I also recognize that it's going to be multifaceted response. There's going to be, they're going to see godly Christians, and they're going to say, oh, I, I need what they have. They're going to be challenged intellectually, and they're going to say, maybe what I'm believing is not right. And they're going to be five or six things that together lead to, the Holy Spirit uses to draw them uh, to Christ and, and be changed by the power of the gospel. But I don't think there's any, like, here's how to do that. Now, again, I, I would encourage you to read uh, the book I mentioned earlier, James Emery White, The Rise of the Nuns, which is basically about how to reach secular people. And there's a lot of other resources on there. But that's, in a short time, just to answer there, that kind of the journey I would try to go on. Okay? Probably time for one more. From our uniting church pastor friend. We've had an Anglican priest, and now we have a uniting pastor. I'm really interested in your comment earlier. Um, and it relates, of course, to what we were looking at with the unreached and the nuns and the rise of the nuns. Looking at that whole uh, understanding of the majority of people and the majority of churches of all denominations, yeah. unengaged in meaningful uh, ministry. Hold, hold on one second. Did you see how he wrote that down? He got that exactly right. Good. Sorry, it's the journalist. It is? Oh, yeah. It's really good. But what I'm interested in understanding more about it is what do you class as um, yeah, that, that understanding of um, meaningful ministry? Yeah. What is meaningful? What is mission? Where does that intersect with ministry? And yeah. Why are we having See, this is the problem. It's a problem with having people like you in my seminar uh, because they give me one session and they don't allow me to give all of the, the underpinning of that statistical statement. So I'm a little bitter towards Scott the Wolverine Sanders over this. Um, so, all right, so let, let me explain. Uh, what we did is we surveyed uh, 7,000 churches okay, of all different denominational, all different Protestant denomination traditions. You can't... Catholic churches aren't structured the same way that you can access surveys. For example, there's not like a, who do I call as the pastor? I need to talk to the senior priest, minister, pastor. There's nobody who can. Oh, I understand. Yeah, exactly. So, so research-wise, you can't, you can't do that. So, so Protestant. Um, and so what we did then is we did a series of surveys of the, the first the pastor, minister, priest's perception of the involvement. And then we have subsequent research surveys that show the people's perception of their involvement. And we defined meaningful ministry as something beyond, well, actually, let me give you the exact numbers, okay? So this is, this is uh, uh, and it shifts in different, but, but primarily it's going to look like this, is that about 20% of people in churches have something where 
They're engaging in something outside of a Sunday morning. It could be preparation for teaching Sunday morning. It could be doing some ministry. It could be some home group. So that's about 20%. If you add people who have Sunday morning only responsibilities, you get almost to 40%. So that means 40% of the adult attendees of a typical church in an English-speaking Western cultural context has something that they do. So that means 60% have no responsibilities related to church and ministry and mission. And when I answer a question, they're not also doing something outside in the community, like they're not engaged in some, you know, my, my wife, for example, wouldn't show up on a survey in a church because my wife teaches uh, the undocumented immigrants of children English as a second language as her ministry uh, out, out, out focus. So, so that means 60% of people on average are unengaged in meaningful ministry or mission. So ministry could be any role in a church, mission could be in a role church or inside or outside of the church. But in other words, 60% of the church, people who go to church are really doing nothing. Not nothing. I mean, they're doing great. They're probably loving their kids. They're probably nice to their parents, whatever. Uh, but, you know, what I'm saying is, is anything that's, that's relatable to I've got a gift, I'm using it to serve others. So that's how we, how we determine that metric. What's encouraging to this, and I see you guys getting restless. I'll be quick. What's encouraging to this, and it's not because you're a uniting church. They're just, they're very particular about time. Yeah. <laughs> Except when they're talking. Um, so anyway, so in, again, I love a country where sarcasm is a love language. You know, I live in the American South where if you're sarcastic, people like get really sad. But here. All right. So, so um, but here's the thing that's encouraging is what we found is about 10% of the churches actually have over 60% of people actually engaged or involved. You get to 5% of churches have 70 to 80% of people involved. Now, I don't want to get above that because I want there to be space and place for people who trying to figure out where they are in a spiritual journey. Don't, don't need to be getting involved. There are people who are healing or even hiding, and they're kind of on this journey. So I actually left. That stat didn't discourage me because I can find examples of models. We wrote about it in a book called Transformational Church, models of actually higher level of engagement and involvement. So I think more and more we're hearing people talk about that, and I think that's an encouraging Is thing. It's also an opportunity of us trying to... Um, shift the understanding of what is mission, what is ministry. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the person who says, oh, I don't do any ministry or mission within the church or as an outreach of my faith, it was actually you know, a regular volunteer down at the hospital. No, no, we would include that. We included that. We included, um, one of the questions was, do you serve uh, people in the community outside of your local church? And that number included, so no, most people just aren't doing that. So I know, because you, you and I are both in a, in a, have a passion for seeing more of that. That's more of a mainline passion and evangelicals are now more and more discovering social justice and engaging in ministries of mercy but no that was including that and by the way when a church has a higher percentage of people who are serving the hurting of the community their evangelistic opportunity and their evangelistic results are actually higher as well we found a statistical correlation between serving the hurting and evangelistic processes and success in a local church that's in the chapter on mission so my view of mission is is i think probably similar to where you include serving the hurting uh, but that was that, that that's still 60% are doing nothing and and here's the thing it's going to be higher among your church than it is among Ben the Pentecostals church because of some of the reasons that I said. The longer you've been around, the more historic you are, the more nominal you tend to be. hundred years from now, Pentecostals will be dealing with the same thing that, you, that, that United Church is dealing with and others are dealing with, high percentage of nominal believers.